Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Anthony Nitsos likes to joke that he and Michael Crichton of Jurassic Park fame have something in common. They're both top medical school dropouts, but the other guy clearly made a lot more money from his move. <laughs> yeah. Fast forward many years later, after careers in manufacturing process improvement, he's a Six Sigma black belt, large-scale ERP implementation executed during the Y2K crisis, controllership of a Japanese company which scaled 10x revenue in three years, founding a yoga studio, and now fractional CFO for dozens of SaaS startups, including working with two unicorn exits. Anthony now spends his time as CEO of SaaS Gurus, a one-stop shop for all things SaaS uh, Finance and Accounting, SaaS Gurus specializes in automating and optimizing every operation it can inside of startups to help them to set them up for rapid scaling, cash flow maximization, and value maximization using unique blend of medical, manufacturing, IT, and finance skills backed by a SaaS-specific strategy. So then while he's not advising clients, he's a husband and father of two, plays classical guitar and judo, and is set on learning nine foreign languages. So basically, Anthony, you just sit around, you don't accomplish much, you don't do much, you're a pretty lazy guy, huh? Yeah, I just am a couch potato. I really like watching MTV all day. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So listen, before we get further into all those great things you've done, the background, the deals we're going to talk about, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I'm guessing at least the far majority, if not all of those things on that list probably was not it back then, but you tell me. <laughs> Not a single one of them was on that list. I'll tell yeah. you that. I'm trying to think 10 or 11. I think about that time I wanted to be an astronomer. I think that was probably when, you know, okay. the phase when I was like, black holes are cool. And I'd watch the space launches, the Apollo program. Yes, I'm old enough to remember the moon landing. So I was part of that age. And then, of course, the 1970s come along, and everything goes sideways, right? And we stopped going to the moon and it was crushing. So it's like, I think I wanted to be an astronomer then. Love it. Love it. And one other question, looking back, what was the first deal of any type that you remember doing? Could have been something small when you were a kid or early in your career or whatever comes to mind. I think the first deal I would have to say is, sadly enough, my father passed and he had a partner and there was a buy-sell agreement and yeah. I was a complete noob. I had no idea what this stuff was. My father had put me in charge of his estate when he passed and I had to all of a sudden come up to speed with, hey, what's a buy-sell arrangement? What's an insurance payout? How do you go about valuing a company? So that was kind of like my baptism in fire. I wow. think I was all, I'm trying to think, all of 26 years old when I got thrown into that. So I would say that that was probably the first deal that I was involved in. Wow, tough circumstance learning. Yeah, yeah I mean, I had previously dropped out of medical school, right? I was retooling my career. I had gone from medicine to manufacturing because I guess they both started with M <laughs> and I was in Michigan. So yeah, I was like, oh, what's this? Oh my God, I got to deal with this. So yeah, that was pretty much it. 
Wow. So one of your early experiences was to think of BIOS at two unicorns, but you worked at or evolved with one. Talk about sort of that ride, what your role was, and I'm sure you talk unicorns, it must have raised capital, like what was the exit, all that kind of stuff. So in the case of Duo Security, that was the one where I was there for about three and a half years. I came into the company, we were in eight figures revenue at that point, and we would go to nine by the time I left. The CFO there who had been in and around the VC space, the tech startup space for a number of years, was looking for somebody to come in and basically just run and scale the back office operation. And with my ERP background, my controller background, my manufacturing process engineering, he came across my LinkedIn site. Hey, there you go. Those things work. I was literally in his backyard almost because we were both living in Ann Arbor. And of course, Duo's in, based in Ann Arbor. Long story short, he hired me to come in as a, basically the senior director of finance to essentially scale everything that I could in the back office in order to obviously enable the company to achieve this massive growth, which it did. So that was really kind of a the second time I'd gone through a, what I call a 10x scale. The first one yep. being the Japanese company I worked for, where we 10x the revenue in three years. That was in manufacturing. Here I was doing it again, only now it was for software and a venture back company. Let's talk a little bit because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business owners, whatever stage they're at, that's the dream. At least they think that's the dream at some point, right? Create a unicorn and have it scale and raise venture money and, and whatever. But some very specific things around that journey that one, make it not appropriate or uh, for many companies, but also that sort of changed the dynamic. I mean, as an executive at a company like that, like what does it mean to have that kind of financing and that kind of growth rate or and the expectations of that kind of growth rate from your investors? Well, you know how Peter Parker's uncle said, great power comes great responsibility, right? So the term I came is with great influx of investment comes great expectations. If yes. you get a, a C round or a B round, the level of what are you going to do and how, you, how fast are you going to get that ARR up? that becomes all-encompassing and all-consuming. In the case of Duo, I joined after the C round had been closed. This was now to the point where they had completely figured out the decoded the DNA of the sales process. So all they had to do was more money into the sales operation and the marketing operation to get more deals. To me, that's the first step of climbing Mount Everest is you got a company, you start it, and by happenstance, you get some contracts, right? And then yep. you're CEO, so you're lead cook and bottle washer, you're doing the sales, you're doing the operations, you're doing the finance, you're doing all this stuff. And eventually you start hiving this stuff off to other people. But ultimately what you have to do is you have to come up with that sales playbook and that marketing playbook that says, we pour more money in here and more money comes out here in terms of deals. That's a critical stage for startups is if you kind of happenstance along to the point where you got enough revenue coming in, but then you got to sit there and figure out, okay, how do I turn this faucet on? And that's kind of the break point. I've seen so many companies struggle on those rocks and they just crash and burn because yeah, it's been the CEO. They're the best salesperson. They're the champion. They know how to sell it, but then they have to turn that over to somebody else. And that's a big stumbling point. That's the point where a lot of companies just break down and they cannot get through that. Duo had figured that out. And so when I came there, it was now, okay, we are now going to really launch this thing into orbit. We need somebody here to basically help build the rocket, which yeah. in the back office rocket, not the front office rocket, the back office rocket. And that's where I came in because I had the ERP experience. I'd had the systems re-engineering experience. I knew my way around finance and accounting. I'd been working for SaaS companies since 2007, so I knew what the story was. And that's where it took off. And that was an interesting journey because this is where I came up with the term tech pile. Okay. 
we're all familiar with tech stack, right? Yeah. What your tech stack is. But with these startups, what I noticed, and this was really apparent with Duo, is that, okay, we need a payroll system. Okay, let's go get one. We need an accounting system. Okay, let's go get one. We need a CRM. Okay, let's go get one. We need a CSM. Let's go get one. And what happens is everybody's doing their own thing and everybody's getting their own software. But the problem is there's nobody in the background sitting there architecting, how is this all going to fit together and work yeah. in a smooth easily accessible manner where everything is integrated, where it's like, okay, who's got the customer list? Well, finance has got one. Okay. Sales has got one. Customer success has one. Marketing has one. It's like, okay, they all don't agree. What you don't want is that tech pile, right? Which is you got all these lumps and all these, you remember the movie Wally? Yeah. Remember that? Remember yeah. all the piles of garbage that he's like trying to work at? <laughs> that's the image that comes to my mind when I think about a company that's made it that far. Right. Because you can, you can make it really far without these yeah. systems working, but then you get to this point where that's holding you back. Oh yeah. Because you yeah. just can't get the information you need, whether it's finance information, whether it's KPIs, SAS metrics, it really doesn't matter. It's so much work to get it out that by the time you get the information out, two months have passed or a month have passed and it's stale information. So yeah, I come it, it, from a background where you want everything instantly coming to you. Yeah. It's all in one system. And so that's where I came up with the term. Yeah, this is a tech pile, right? It's yeah. Like yeah, it really brings two things to mind for me. Like the image that I had was you have an orchestra, right? And there's a reason there's a conductor, right? Without a conductor, if you had the violinist playing Brahms and the pianist playing Mozart and the horns playing Bach or whatever, right? Like it's, <laughs> they're all good music, but it's, uh, it's <laughs> chaos. doesn't work together. Yeah. No, um, it doesn't. The other thing that I thought about Les McEwen's book, Predictable Success, where he talks, he calls that stage where you get to the point where there's opportunity to scale, right? In the beginning, it's start up, you're hustling, then you get to this little stage he calls fun, where, hey, things are starting to work. People are starting to buy the product. Okay, we can deliver it. It's cool. But then you get to that next stage where there's volume before you hit what he calls predictable success, where you do need teams and systems and processes and everything to work together. He calls that stage whitewater. So that's the... <laughs> I, I like that term. That fits. Yeah. You're going really fast and you just don't see the waterfall that's coming up. You're moving so fast. And then the next thing you know, you're over it. And it's like, uh-oh. Yep. Yeah. And you're just reacting. Inevitably, these things break down when you're about to go through some deep due diligence for something. Right. Right. right? That's where it really like all of a sudden the pain really comes to the fore. It's like if you're ever acquired by a public company, that's probably the worst due diligence you'll ever go through because oh, they yeah. have hordes of people who do nothing but sit there and try and find things and look for stuff. And so the lists of stuff that they give you is just like literally pages and hundreds of lines long. Even a B or a C round due diligence are pretty intense. Um, a rounds, not so much. Seed rounds, not so much. But you start getting into the B and C range where you're talking nine figures in some cases for the investment. Well, they don't want to just kick the tires. They want to disassemble the car and see how it's put back together and make sure that you did the job right. If you don't have the back office systems put together, and it's not just the back office systems, it's really the metrics, because that's what they're looking for is they're trying to benchmark you and say, okay, are you better than the average Joe? Are you actually exceeding what you should be for your industry? Well, they can't do that unless they have an apples to apples comparison using your numbers versus what they're seeing either in their portfolio or their industry standards that they're using, whatever benchmarks they're using. And that's where the stuff usually hits the fan, right? It's like, yeah. oh, we got to produce this. 
Well, who's got it? Inevitably, they're going to throw it to some poor finance schmuck who's got to sit there and wade through thousands of pieces of data to try and put it together and doesn't get to sleep for three weeks and then comes out bleary-eyed with a report and then it's wrong, right? Right. <laughs> it's right. like, no, we got to go back and do it again. You don't want to be screwing a deal because you don't have the right numbers. I mean, that's just like the worst thing, right? No question. And, and you know, one of the things that listeners have heard me say on this podcast previously is that you know, you talked about these hordes of people who come in who are looking for what's wrong, right? They have to understand the mentality. Right? So it might have been the executive level, the decisions made to do the deal, but the people who are doing the due diligence, their risk is that they miss something. Their risk is that the deal gets done and something turns out to be a problem and they didn't find it, right? So they're actually looking for reasons very often, whether it's in the finance folks, the legal folks, or whoever it is, right? The people looking at the contracts and systems, the people and whatever. Some of them are even, hopefully, most of them have good mentality, but their job is to find stuff that's wrong, right? And some of them would be much rather find something that's wrong and have the deal not go through because that makes them look like a hero than certainly miss something and have the deal go through and then it falls back on them. So you got to keep that in mind, which is why I often talk to clients about doing that pre-due diligence in every way. You should go through an internal due diligence process in anticipation of any kind of deal to try to get you best position. I would even go further. When we first engage, some of our clients we engage with are really like pre-seed in some cases. You got five people. Some of them are further along the path. And the first thing I do when I walk in is I say, where's your data room, right? It's almost the very first question. Where's your data room? Why? The reason why is, A, I need it. As the CFO coming in, the first thing I need to do is find out where are all the skeletons buried, right? Where are all the corpses? But more important is I'm looking at it to say, I'm going to assume that you're successful. And there's going to be some day where there are going to be five CFO types coming in to look at your data room and check all of the work that's in there. Yeah. And so... I start them really early. I don't wait. It's like part of the organism, part of our onboarding process is specifically setting up the data room. It's like, give me all your customer contracts. I want all your employment contracts. I want every financial report you've ever produced. I want all your board minutes. I want everything. And typically it's like, oh, well, we have those. Sure. Yeah, we've got them all. Yeah. And it's like, okay, show me. Well, Joe's got those. Okay. Well, Jane's got those. Okay. So some are in DocuSign, some are in G Drive. Somebody's got a Microsoft Teams account with SharePoint scattered all over to five, six different systems. Go back to, oh, that's your tech pile. I get it. So really all kind of ties back together because in the end, it's the person, the organization that can produce the things most easily, most accurately, most efficiently. Those are the ones where this stuff doesn't get in the way. Yeah. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com assessment. That's coreykupfer.com assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So you've alluded to it and we talked about it in the bio, but I want to give you a little time to talk more specifically about SaaS gurus and what you do now, who the clients you work with more specifically. 
We work with tech startups, right? They're all almost all venture backed in some areas. We do have some bootstrappers. I mean, they no. do exist. And we've got a few that have reached seven figure ARR that without any outside investment, those are the kind of the interesting ones. But inevitably, when we come in, I go back to like, yeah, you mentioned the fact that I had a yoga studio. Mm -hmm. Yeah, core strength. We all know about core strength when it comes to yoga. I talk about the finance core. Because in the end, your finance operations, your sales operations, and your HR operations, those three pieces, if they're not synchronized and working really well, you're going to have problems. Sales operations, quote to cash. How quickly can you get from a quote to a sales close to an invoice, right? How many times have I seen, hey, we got the order. And then three months later, we're still waiting to invoice the client. It's like, what that app yeah. is going on that it's taken this long to get to revenue. So getting that quote to cash process or, hey, we got the invoice out. Well, it's been 90 days since we've sent it out. Nobody's paid it. So who do we call? Oh, I don't know. Well, who did you send it to? This email or well, AP at. Okay, that really does me a lot of good. Or we got HR. Sure. We got contracts. Mm -hmm. Where's your IP assignments? What's that? Right. Oops. And for your folks that don't know what that means is when you have developers and folks that are putting your code together, unless they assign the rights to that code over to the company, they could later come back and claim that it's theirs, right? So you want to make sure that's protected. Benefits package. This is a competitive market. You need to make sure that you got competitive benefits. And then there's the whole finance and accounting piece. Does your financial system look like a SaaS company? I can't tell you how many times Corey, the last person you should ever have set up your accounting system is your tax CPA. <laughs> if nobody else is left on the island and they're the only ones standing, maybe that's what you do. But I can't tell you how many times that I've walked in and the first thing we take a look at is, okay, show me your financial report. Show me your P&L. Yeah. Oh, we've got wages all in one line. Hey, that's great. What's your gross margin? Oh, we don't know. You know, yeah. I'll tell you in SaaS, that's probably the second most important metric after growth is what's your gross margin. So when we come in, it's always a cleanup. We got to get the financial system cleaned up so it's giving us the information we need. The next thing we do is we come in and we put in a cash forecast. In the SaaS startup world, there are two metrics that matter. I don't care what anybody else says. Cash runway and sales growth. Yeah. Everything else is detail. Yes, CAC is important. Yes, gross margin is important. Yeah, I get all that. But if you don't have enough cash to make it to the next round, none of that's going to matter. And I if your sales that. aren't growing fast enough, nobody's going to invest in you. So if you get nothing else, if your listeners get nothing else out of what I have to say today, make sure you know to the penny when your cash is going to run out and make sure that you have that go-to-market strategy figured out so that your sales are growing because without those two pieces, you're not going to make it. So yeah, that's it, what we focus on. We focus on really getting them set up. You know, all that P&L work and all that financial forecast yeah. work, the main thing that I'm getting out of it is, like I just did earlier today, sat down with a very brilliant founder who's come up with a fantastic idea. It's an AI-backed solution. And they just got a seed round, $2 million. When is it going to run out? Yep. First question, when's it going to run out? Okay, well, we got some work to do. Yeah. And that, you know, like it's just such a different game than other types of businesses, right? Because you're not going to look at traditional P&L profitability numbers in the beginning for a while, right? Because money's- Well, you can't spend net income. 
Well, that's right. Right. <laughs> Money's cash. getting thrown back into growth. The whole thing is about growth and scale. You might even be starting out with some sort of freemium model or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. But there's no revenue. There's a million reasons why those businesses are evaluated differently. So yeah, they need to be set up differently in the numbers that you get access to and then what you focus on. And you're right. I mean, it's a lot of these founders, right? I mean, if, especially if you're talking about a first-time founder, they haven't played this game before. They have no idea. Maybe they've worked at someplace else. But even when they have, if they're, let's say, tech-oriented or they're sales-oriented or whatever it is, they've probably never been involved in the finance side, even if they work. No, as a matter of fact, they probably skipped those accounting classes in college because <laughs> they thought of it as like the bubonic plague. And I get that, all right? It's totally understandable. No, you did not grow up to be a founder CEO. You did not become a founder CEO so you could do the accounting or the financial planning. And you're right, the first time founders, those are the ones they've got the brilliant idea, okay? The golden haired stepchild, whatever it happens to be. And they've got some piece of software that everybody wants to have, but they don't wanna look stupid because there's these high expectations. I had this conversation with my son the other day. He's like, dad, cause he's getting to the point where he's curious about what dad does. I'm trying my best to dissuade him from this to work, but that's okay. <laughs> said, you know, so how about the ones that succeed, the successful ones? You said, what makes them different? Mm. I said, the easiest way to explain it is they know when they don't know something and they hire the right people to come in and do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's the ones that are micromanagers. It's the ones that have big egos. Those are the ones that aren't going to make it because the micromanagers are too busy in the details. They get too bogged down in the minutia and they can't pull themselves out to look at the big picture. And the other ones, they have too big of an ego in order to understand that I really don't know how to do this stuff. Or even if I do know how to do this stuff, that's not where I should be spending my time. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I'm a big believer and people have heard me talk about this podcast and highest and best use. Like you should be focusing on those areas that you are just the rock star in, right? The special sauce, whatever you wanna call it. There's a million names for it, but where you're great at it, you're passionate about it, nobody else in the company can really do that. That's where you should be spending your time. And even if you're capable, every minute you spend on something that's not that is costing the company. So mm -hmm. 100% agree. Yeah. And the CEO of a tech startup, they need to be pushing sales, pushing sales, whether it's out there evangelizing the product, whether it's podium time in front of some trade group, whatever it is, they yep. need to be out there making sure that the sales are growing. And in the back, when the doors are closed, they're looking at the cash to make sure that they know when they have to go out and do the next raise. Yeah. Because what I tell everybody is if you have a cash forecast that shows you running out of cash in December, you're in trouble because nobody does a deal in December. <laughs> right. If right. you don't have a term sheet in your hand by Halloween, you might as well forget about it because nobody's going to be paying any attention to you once Thanksgiving, once November starts rolling around. And so everybody's like, really? I said, yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. It's like, you need to put a cash forecast together and you need to make sure that you have cash at the end of December to carry you into the first quarter because you're either raising in Q3 and wrapping it up, or you're going to be raising in Q1 because you might as well forget about trying to raise in Q4. Just forget about it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And listen, having an understanding of cap, I mean, anybody knows about the startup world. I mean, there are countless examples of good companies who had great ideas, concepts, or even had some traction who ran out of money, right? Yeah. Whether it's because of poor cash management, whether it's because they happen to hit, they needed to raise in the capital markets dried up for external reasons or whatever it is. So that's where a lot of companies run into trouble. I and mean, yes, some of them, the product doesn't prove out, there's not market fed whatever it is, but some of them actually, they only had more, more money and more runway. They could have made it.
those are the sad cases to me. It's like, you've got a great yeah. product, you have a great team and you just didn't pay attention to the thing you needed to, which is your runway. That's why I, I've learned over the years is the first thing I come in when I take a look at it is where's your cash now? What's your burn look like? I can get to that number pretty quickly in like a matter of a couple of days, just based on, even if it's a garbage accounting system, I can go to the bank account and start doing some calculations, right? That's not a scientific way of doing it. That's just, I can brute force it because I've been doing this stuff for a long time and I've got a sense. That's the first thing I look at is like, oh, you have that much in the bank? The last three months you've burned this much? Based on what I'm seeing, you're going to run out of cash in the next six months. Are you in a raise motion right now? Right. And it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, all right. We need, we got to get to work. So what SaaS Gurus does, what we do is we go in there and we fix that finance core. That's the first thing we do. And as a part of that, there's a tremendous amount of illumination that comes out. You know, the light bulbs go off. Oh, I had no idea we that was going on. What do you mean we have five CRMs? You know, it's like, <laughs> one, guy, one CEO was like, what do you mean I have five CRMs? I said, there they are. He said, I had no idea. It was a 50 person company. So it was getting to the point where he wasn't keeping track of everything, but that's just throwing money away. I mean, just, yeah. there's no reason for that. And then once we're there and we're working, then it's the strategy. That's the fun part for me. It's like, yeah. how do we price our contracts? Do we do implementation fees or do we do go pure SaaS? In this market, how do we go about actually getting the contracts to close faster? If you're dealing with large enterprises or you're dealing with healthcare networks, it's a six to nine month sales process. I don't care, yeah. right? Just, it's going to take that long. If we bring a salesperson in, what's the ramp we expect? Those are the kinds of discussions that I like to get drawn into and spend my time on. And in order to get to that, we need to really automate everything up to the controller function. And that's really what it's all about for us is, and I think that's what sets us apart from some of the other firms that do this work is, I come from a Japanese manufacturing background where you wanted everything as efficient as possible down to the nth degree because we're trying to squeeze every ounce of profit out that we can especially if it's automotive manufacturing, you want to talk about cheap. <laughs> Sorry for the automotive manufacturers out there, but I know your secret. Yes, you're trying to be as cheap as possible in the back office. So you mentioned that scaling company. Yeah, the mission I was given was we had to scale the company 10x and the three people that I had working in the back office with me were the only three people I was allowed to keep. Wow. So basically we had to 10X the volume of all the data, all the financial transactions, all the planning and everything else, but I couldn't hire any more people because the G&A margin simply could not grow. It had to shrink. So that was my first real baptism in terms of scaling to make sure that, okay, how do I set this thing up so that all of this information is coming to me in as automated as fashion? Now we're talking 15 years ago, 20 years ago for that. The technology yeah. has advanced so much. So much, yeah. It's so much easier to automate this stuff now, right? Yeah. Because everybody's got an API, everybody's got an SDK, everybody has a way to plug in, play just about everywhere. And if you can't, go buy Zapier because it can plug and play just about everything, right? So there's so many tools out there to automate this stuff. There's no excuse for you to have to body up your back office in order to get numbers. There just yeah. isn't. Yeah, no, it really makes sense. It's funny how, uh, I mean, like, I don't want to be one of those guys who's like, back in my day, it was like, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but like, I even remember, this is a tiny example, but I, I remember when I first launched my law firm in, in 1992, we had servers and hardwire through the walls into the office when we were building out the office. And then in uh, 2015, I had gone into a partnership split up and restarted my own firm. 
And we were up and running with, with five laptops and an internet, right? You know, like at 600 bucks a month in cloud programs, right? And obviously at a tech startup, it's a little more involved, but the difference from what it was to now is similar scale. But listen, you still run into the same problems when you go into companies in that it's easier. It doesn't mean that they do it or use it or that it's integrated or whatever, right? I mean, it should be easier, but they're focused on other stuff still, right? In a lot of cases. Well, that's that tech pile problem. Because the technology is... There's so much more out there. It's actually easier to get into trouble. Right. 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 Because there's such a breadth and depth of all these applications out there. The other thing too, is that I think where we really help our clients is we've already sorted through that stuff. Yeah. Right. I already know what the solutions work and how they work and the ones that work best. And we're constantly looking for ways to improve it. That's not their job. They don't have time to go out there and figure out what's the best accounting system. What's the best SAS metric system? What's the best quoting system? Those are the things that they look to me to say, okay, Anthony, what are they? And I'll say, okay, here are the ones that we work with. Here's how we put them together. If you follow this, you'll get this result. And I like to do it in a way where it's easy for me to plug and play, where it's not so much the software itself, it's the underlying data structures, right? If you've got the data structured the right way, it's easy for you to pull it out of whatever system you have it in and plug it into the next one. So people ask, well, when do we have to go to NetSuite? Oh, when you're about 100 million. What, you can run QuickBooks up to 100 million? I said, I have run QuickBooks up to 100 million. It can handle it. Now, whether you want to do that, that's different, but you can do it. It's actually capable of performing at pretty high speeds. But if you don't have, say, the chart of accounts set up correct, then you're going to have to redo all that. So I'm setting them up, like I said, from day one, I'm setting them up for a unicorn, right? Why not? It's easy because you know about the story about the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, right? Mm -hmm. And now we have all these networks that are sitting there watching the skies looking for asteroids. And the reason why we're looking for them is we don't want these things falling on our heads and wiping us out, right? And it really bothers me when I read these stories about, yeah, there's this big rock that we only saw yesterday that's going to pass by the Earth tomorrow. It's like, boy, we dodged the bullet on that one. I would rather see that thing out at the orbit of Pluto, right, when yeah, we can maybe yeah. do something about it. And yeah. that's in reverse how I look upon these things. It's like a little bit of change right now can have a huge impact later. So a little bit of proper setup now when this company is small can have a big benefit later when you're going to plug and play and replace QuickBooks with NetSuite or Intact or whatever you're going to use. Or I'm going to use PandaDoc today and then I'm going to go to, I don't know, whatever the new CPQ is, but that's the one we happen to like because our clients are small. But you start off with HubSpot and move to Salesforce. Well, that's very easy to do if you set up HubSpot, right? Right, right. It's not so easy to do if you didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting to me because I think this whole discussion is one of those areas where the impact on ability to get deals done, on valuation, mm -hmm. on whether you're raising capital, whether you're selling company, whatever it is, is so significant and it's so overlooked. Like that's not what most founders are looking at as drivers of value. Obviously, they should, obviously sales growth, a lot of stuff is going to be more important. But if you're a mess on the back end, whether it's in due diligence or whether it's affecting your ability to grow or make strategic decisions or watch your cash flow or all that stuff is I think so underappreciated in terms of the ability to be successful, build value and have more interested potential parties to the table in deals that won't fall apart in due diligence. I just really think it's way more important than people think it is. Yeah. Some of our best clients are the ones that have gone through this before. 
So you talk about the first time founders, they have to have the right mindset to bring in an expert to help them with this stuff. Somebody somewhere got the message through to them that, no, this stuff is important and you need it. Could be the VC that's bringing their money in to say, hey, I know you don't have a lot of experience in finance. We need you to come in, bring in a fractional CFO. Even though you're early stage, they can really help you out early. If nothing else, they can answer a lot of what you call dumb questions like, gee, yeah. how much insurance should I have? Or what kind of insurance should I have? You think about all the different things that you need to run a company. And you and I take these for granted because we live and breathe this stuff. But for somebody who's just come out of whatever, and they've got the new whiz-bang idea, they may not know the first thing like, oh, I have to have unemployment insurance. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's like all those little things that can come back and bite you. So there's real value to the ones that are first-time founders, but the ones that have been through it once or twice before, and they know that they need this stuff, now yeah. they're looking for the person who's got the expertise to come in and do it. Yeah. Know, not somebody to come and invent it, but somebody who's done it before. Because I go back to this a lot. Tech startups are not the place for on-the-job training. <laughs> Maybe the CEO is the only one who gets to do that because they're the founder and it's their brainchild. But large organizations, you can bring somebody in who's new to train them up, figure, you know, yeah. they can help be mentored, they can be trained and whatnot. But in a tech startup, when you have a 10-person crew, a 5-person crew, a 15-person crew, 20, maybe once you start getting into 30 and 40 people, it starts to change. But below that level, you need to hire people that have done it before and know what mm -hmm. they're doing, not hire some, hey, this guy's really sharp and he's a friend of mine and you know, I really want to give him a hand. That's great. I understand that. I'm human too. I have the same temptation, but in the end, you got to do what's right for the company. And what's right for the company is hiring the people that know how to do what you need them to do in order to get you to the next level. It's like Mario Brothers, right? It's like you got to get to the next level. Well, you got to beat the big boss in order to get the next level. Well, you can't do that with noob schmuck that doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah. So do you get referred in by board members who worked with us and seen what we do? They refer us in. VCs refer us in. Yeah. Other CEOs that have worked with us refer us in. We get almost all of our businesses by referral. It's folks yeah. that are familiar with what we do. I'm doing a little bit more outreach now and, you know, actually getting like some outside marketing myself, but it's been really busy for us because it's not that big of an industry where once you get a name established, people say, oh yeah, these guys over here, they know what they're doing. You know, sure. go, go hire them or go talk to them. And we have a pretty easy process for getting to know clients and figuring out where they go. The first thing I do when I sit down with somebody after that kind of initial discovery call is they're a good fit. So I said, look, I'm going to give you a free audit for an hour and a half. You and I are going to sit down. We're going to dive through every system that you have. I've got a whole set of questions. At the end of 90 minutes, I'm going to have a pretty clear idea of where we could go with this. And I yeah. don't charge for that because it's me getting to know them. And they get to know me in the process too, just based on the kind of questions I'm asking. And inevitably, I'm giving them some advice, right? Something's going to come up in that audit, say, hey, you know, I see you're putting $50,000 on implementation fee for a $50,000 SaaS contract. I said, what if you were to drop that down to $15,000 and take that extra thirty-five dollars and add it to your SaaS contract over three years? I said, that'll change your multiples overnight. The light bulbs go off. I mean, it's an easy example. But you'd be surprised how many times I find that. Because if somebody told me, say, hey, you got to charge implementation fees up front. It's easy cash. You get it in the door now. I said, yeah, there is a temptation for that. But do you know what the multi AR, you know what the valuation multiple on services is versus the valuation multiple on recurring revenue? Exactly. Right? I said, when you go into your next round for investment, which pre-money valuation do you want to have? 
Yeah, and it is that mentality shift. Often I talk on this podcast about the mindset of a deal maker, right? And this concept of thinking about how every decision you make in the company is going to affect the eventual deal, whether it's a capital raise or an exit or whatever it is, is a mindset shift. So it takes that mindset shift, takes that desire and willingness and ability to to hire the right people and then to be able to get the right information to make those strategic decisions. But I'm always a believer without the mind shift uh, first, it's really, really difficult. Yeah. You have to, like I said, the successful ones know when they don't know and don't have a big enough ego to get in the way to go out and say, hey, I need help here. Yeah. Yeah. Before I ask you my final two questions, any last thoughts on lessons, issues that come up, these companies do it right, anything we haven't covered? I'm sure there's a million things, but anything come to mind that you want to mention before? You know, I'm just going to reiterate, it's cash runway and sales. I mean, I have to come back to that one. And there's so many ways where that manifests itself that I could then you, we could go into lots of rabbit holes, but in the end, it comes down to those two. You got a check from an investor. Now you got to figure out how to spend it. Plan it. Don't do it by the seat of your pants. For goodness yeah. sake, sit down with somebody who knows how to do a financial projection and actually do it right. Because if you download some Excel spreadsheet from who knows where, right? Hey, so this is a financial planning spreadsheet. Let's download it and use it. Okay, that's great. How do you measure your actual versus budget if you haven't married that thing up to your accounting system? Mm. So I, I see, hey, we've got an accounting system over here that our tax CPA set up. And that right there tells me what I've got. And we've got the spreadsheet that we downloaded from the MIT website for startups. I said, that's great. But you've got apples and walnuts. <laughs> They're not even both fruit. Yeah, apples and walnuts, right? <laughs> Unless you have those two both working together in a seamless fashion, you're not going to be able to plan. Yeah, good stuff. So Anthony, if people want to find out more about your services, where should they go? Well, I have this really almost unpronounceable Greek last name, N-I-T-S-O-S, N-I-T-S-O-S, Nitsos, right? There are so few of us out there that if you just Googled my last name with Anthony in front of it, you're probably going to find me. The easiest way is sasgurus.io, S-A-A-S-G-U-R-U-S.io, sasgurus.io. You'll find us um, or find me on LinkedIn, Anthony Nitzos. I'm probably the only guy named Anthony Nitzos out there on LinkedIn. But those are the easiest way. And our webpage has a contact us that comes directly into my inbox. I, I make sure I answer those quickly because I don't want people to wait. Like, I don't want to wait, right? You send something in there, say, hey, I'm interested in your product. And three days later, somebody gets back to you. It's like, yeah, you know, I already bought your competitor's product. Because <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you're Love too it. late. And that those, those are the easiest ways to get a hold of me. Excellent. My final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people around the world, from oppression to why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Freedom to me means the ability for me to be able to do what I want without harming anybody else. And if I can help other people get happier, because I asked my, he's listening in, in the other room right now. I asked my son the other day, I said, how do you know if you're successful? How do you measure success? Yeah. Maybe it's a lot of money. I said, that's a measure. I said, but to me, the measure of success is, are you happy doing what you're doing? And are the people around you happy? Right. Because in the end, you can have all the money in the world. And when you die, you're not taking it with you. Yep. And if you believe we have a soul and that goes on to the next level, then it's your memories and how you treated people and how you feel about yourself. That's the only thing that you get to carry to the next level. So are you happy? Can you look yourself in the mirror and say, I did the right thing? So that's what's important. Love it. Anthony Nitsos, thank you for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. 
Thank you, Corey. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.